You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Before we started Providence Church uh, six years ago, I, I was a campus minister. I did campus ministry for uh, 19 years. And, and one of the great joys of campus ministry is getting to see st- former students years later uh, and just to catch up with them, uh, just to hear about their walk with God. Uh, and a few weeks ago, I got to have lunch with a guy that I met, I don't even know when, it was, it was like 15 years ago, he was a freshman, and he was in town, and he was like, hey, let's get lunch. And it was so fun, we we're just laughing, we we're just immediately reminiscing and, uh, about old times. And uh, he told me this story, he goes, I, I want to tell you a story that, that I never told you. He said, when I was a sophomore, um, I was in your, your Bible study, I was in your small group, and I was so fired up about my relationship with Jesus, I was growing in my relationship with Jesus like I never had before. But I was also living in my fraternity house, uh, and, and I wanted to be an influence for Christ there. And he said, one day, Todd, you were going to come over to the house, and I was going to introduce you to some other guys, and then and maybe, you, maybe you could help me get a Bible study going in the house. And so we set up this time that you would come by. But on the day that you were scheduled to come by, I totally chickened out, right? I totally did not want to so obviously identify with Christ by saying that I was actually friends with a dorky campus minister, right? And so I was looking out my window from the second floor, and I saw you drive up, saw you get out of your car and head towards the house. And so what I did was I turned out the lights in my room, and I locked my door, and you came upstairs, and you knocked on the door, and I just sat there. And you knocked again, and I just sat there. And finally, you went away, and I saw you, I looked out the window, I saw you get in your car and just drive off. I totally punked you, man, is what he said. I never told you that. If you're a campus minister, that's how you get treated by 19-year-olds, right, sometimes. (laughs) Not always, but sometimes. Have you ever felt like, my friend, like you have some kind of duality in you? Like dual nature, like one minute you're honoring Christ, the next minute you're dishonoring Christ. Like at one moment you're like so fired up about Jesus in in small group or Bible study, and then you're at work the next minute and it's like you don't even know Jesus. Like one minute you're blessing Christ, the next minute you're blocking His work. Like what is going on with that kind of duality? I think we all feel that, don't we? It's a little bit frustrating sometimes. But as you heard read, I think we're in good company. Peter, one of Jesus' closest uh, disciples, has a good day, and then he has a really bad day, right? He gets it right with Jesus, and then right away he gets it so wrong with Jesus. We've been, as a church, looking at, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew this fall, we've been looking at encounters that Jesus has with actual people, with real people. And we actually learn a lot about Jesus from these encounters, but we, but we learn a lot about ourselves, too, as we look at these uh, encounters. And Matthew today, I think, tells us a story about Peter's duality to teach us something about Jesus. Because what we see here is we see Peter's confession, right, when Peter has a moment of clarity about Jesus 
And we learn something about Jesus there. And then, in the very next paragraph, we see Peter's confusion, where he has, he's totally muddled and misunderstands Jesus. And I think Jesus uses both of these interactions to teach us some very foundational things about himself, things that have been foundational to the, gr- the, the growth of the church and to the growth of Christian disciples uh, throughout history, all right? So, let's look at that. What does Peter's duality teach us about Jesus? So, first, let's look at Peter's confession, and then we'll look at his confusion, all right? Look at verse 13, Matthew 16, verse 13. Let's set up the confession. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what do people say about the Son, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, quick context. Here in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus begins to, to reorient himself, reorient his focus, and he begins to spend a lot of time just on his disciples, his key guys. He's been interacting with all kinds of people, but now he's focused on his key guys because he's got to prepare them for the mission uh, when he's gone. And in verse 12, in the story right before this, you know what he told them? He said, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In other words, beware of the teaching of Israel's religious leaders. Guys, there's some really bad teaching out of there. Beware of it. Beware of the podcast of the Pharisees. Do not download that stuff. There's better teaching, right? And so that's the first thing he told them. And then now he takes them into this this city called Caesarea Philippi. It's actually a region, and and it's largely a pagan area. Right? There's the worship of, of Baal there. Uh, there's the worship of the Pan, uh, Pan who's a Greek god. Uh, there's the worship of Caesar himself. There's pagan temples everywhere. And so that's the backdrop. On, on the one hand, you've got Jewish false teaching. On the other hand, you've got Gentile false gods. And, and, and Jesus puts himself up against that backdrop uh, and says, and starts to talk about his identity. Like, who am I? It's like he wants to line himself up with all the world religions and say, you know, who are people saying that I am in the midst of all this? What's the word on the street, guys? You guys have been out there mingling. What are people saying about me? And I love this because God gives us a little, little peek, a little glimpse into Jesus' Bible study. It's like we're in D group or GC with Jesus and the guys, and Jesus asked the icebreaker question, you know, to get it going. Guys, who, who are people say that I am out there? And they got answers to the icebreaker question. Verse 14. They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, these were all the popular opinions about Jesus in that day. Like, maybe he's John the Baptist resurrected because, dude, that guy can preach, right? He reminds us a lot of John the Baptist. Or maybe he's Elijah because Elijah's supposed to come back to usher in the day of the Lord. We, we read about that in Malachi. We remember that in our Old Testament. Maybe it's him. Or maybe he's Jeremiah. Maybe he's one of the prophets because he seems to represent God like one of the prophets. The crowds don't have a negative view of Jesus. They actually have a very high view of Jesus. Right? They have this, this vague notion that Jesus is someone really important. They just don't know exactly who he is. Sounds a lot like our day, doesn't it? Like, if you went out and got the popular opinion of Jesus right now down on West 6th, I think you'd get a lot, of, a lot of good opinion about Jesus, wouldn't you? He was a good man. He was a great moral teacher. He was a prophet. Like, he was a person who lived love and lived peace and lived sacrifice. It's kind of like Gandhi, 
right? You'd hear lots of things about him. That's what's going on here. There's lots of high opinion about Jesus. It's just not high enough. It's not the right opinion. And so Jesus presses further into the, into the Bible study here. Look at verse 15. Man, it's real dark up here. Verse 15. He said to them, but what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? It's the most important question that anyone could ever be asked. Who do you say that I am? It'd be important for anyone to answer it correctly, but of all people, these guys got to get it right. These are his key guys. They got to get this right. Who do you say that I am? And so not surprisingly, Peter speaks up first, right? Peter does not even hesitate. He never does. He never hesitates. Peter's one of these guys where the mouth gets going, right? And the brain says, hey, I'll catch up with you later. And that's what happens in this moment. And so I think Jesus and the rest of the guys are kind of like wincing, like I'm not sure what Peter is about to say here. And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, yes, you're right, Peter. You got it. That's the right answer. And blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Peter, in Bible study, in front of all the other guys, passes the theology pop quiz. He gets the answer right. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the God who is alive. Meaning, unlike all these other gods, these false gods who are not alive, they're dead, they're just statues, you're the son of the God who's alive. You're the Christ. Now, what does Peter mean when he says you're the Christ? Well, in Jewish terms, he means you're the king, right? You're, you're the final king. You're God's anointed one who will come and save his people. He's not saying, Jesus, you're a messenger like one of the prophets. He's saying you're the message, right? I read something this week that was really helpful putting this into our own language today. Peter is saying, Jesus, you are the answer. Jesus, you are the point. Jesus, you are the last word. You are the meaning. You are it. So when Peter calls Jesus the Christ, there is actually nothing higher that he could say about Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, you know what? You are blessed to even know that. Because you couldn't have come up with that on your own. Like, no amount of observation, no amount of study, no amount of learning would have taught you that. Like, no amount of having an open mind and an open heart would have revealed that to you. You couldn't have inherited it from your family, from flesh and blood. The only way you could have known that is by revelation. In other words, God himself would have to reveal that to you. To see Christ accurately is a gift from God, because only God can show us God. And that's why you're blessed, Peter. And what you're saying. When I was studying uh, this text this week, you know, I thought this is, this is holy ground in, in, the, in the gospel of Matthew. I, I think this is holy ground in, in all of the Bible because Jesus is identified here as the Christ, as the final answer, the only one who can save us. He's identified as such, and you know what? He agrees with it. He's like, yes, that's right. That's who I am. That's me. And anyone who knows that and sees that is blessed. Now, here's why it's so important for Peter, and I think for us, to see Jesus as the Christ. 
Because whatever you believe will save you is what you will live for. Isn't that true? Like if you believe that money and possessions will save you uh, and, and, and make your life okay, then you will live for the paycheck. You will live uh, for the acquisition of stuff. Right? If you believe uh, that entertainment uh, and experiences are, are the answer, the final answer to a happy life, then you'll live for the weekend. You'll live for the next big vacation, the next meal out. If you believe that, 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 that status and significance will save you, will rescue you from a life of, of, of obscurity, then you'll live for the approval of others, for climbing the ladder. But if you believe Jesus is the Christ, Jesus, you're the final answer. You're the only one who can save me. You're the only one who can answer all my deepest needs and longings. Then you'll live for Christ. Not perfectly, not always consistently, but you'll say, you know what? I'm going to build my life on you because you're the answer. That's why this is so important in this confession. And so, who do you say that Christ is? Like, whenever you wrestle with that question, you're on holy ground. Who do you say Christ is? Peter's confession is that he's the Christ, right? Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus actually celebrates him, honors him for that. Look at verse 18. Jesus is going to say, Peter, you've correctly identified who I am. Let me tell you who you are. Verse 18, and I tell you, Peter, you are, you are Peter, Petros, rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter, I am going to build my church on you and your confession of me. Nothing is ever going to overcome my church. Nothing is going to cause my church to fail because there's nothing as powerful as your simple confession that Jesus is the Christ. Now, there's lots of ecclesiology packed into these two little verses. You know what that is? Ecclesiology is just a theology of the church. There's tons of it in here. Lots and lots of ink has been spilt over what these two verses mean. Right? Lots of debate through the centuries over what's being said here. Traditionally, Roman Catholics and Protestants have different views about what exactly Jesus is saying about the church uh, and about Peter here. Now, it's not the purpose of this sermon today to discuss those differences, right? Maybe we'll do it in another sermon sometime. When you have like four hours, we will do that. Uh, but suffice it to say, what I want you to catch is that Jesus celebrates Peter here. He lifts him up, and he says, yes, Peter, you're the rock because you've just confessed that I am the final answer. I, I, I am the, I'm the one that, that answers all of life's questions. And my church will be built on that ongoing confession throughout the centuries. And so a true church will be continuously pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. That's what a church will do. So for example, a good GC, a good gospel community, is not just hanging out and having dessert together. A good GC always gets to Jesus. A good discipleship conversation is not just getting coffee and sharing our struggles. A discipleship conversation takes our struggles to Jesus. Right? A worship service of the church is not a worship service unless it proclaims and spotlights and preaches Jesus. And woe to us if we ever get, if we ever get up here and start preaching other things. 
as the answer. Jesus is the Christ. He's the answer. Peter's confession tells us that. It tells us who Jesus is. He's the Christ, which is what makes verse 20 so odd. Look at verse 20. It's a transition to the next scene. Then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Isn't that strange? Like if Jesus is the Christ, if he's the answer to all of the world's problems, why don't we just tell everyone right now? Let's get the word out. Well, I think Peter's going to give the answer as to why not. See, Peter's clear on some things about Jesus, but he's real confused about other things. Let's talk about Peter's confusion for a minute. Look at verse 21. We've seen his confession that teaches us that Jesus is the Christ. Look at his confusion. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Uh, So this is a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew, right here. From this time on, in in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is no longer going to do ministry in Galilee, the region where he grew up. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's on a mission to Jerusalem. Now, why is he going there? Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. In other words, he is going to Jerusalem to die, not peacefully in his bed, not of natural causes. He's going to die brutally at the hands of men, but before that happens, he's going to suffer, and not just a little bit. He's going to suffer greatly. That is Jesus' plan as their leader. That's his promise to them. He's headed uh, to Jerusalem at this point, and he's going to endure all those things. That's his plan. Now, we are in election season right now, in case you have not noticed. Have you noticed? Take heart. It will be over soon, right? Not the world will be over, but the election will be over uh, soon. Uh, The the voting will be over. And and many of you uh, have voted uh, already. Um, Can you imagine going into the voting booth and voting for a candidate, a political candidate, who makes campaign promises like what Jesus promises in verse 21 here. Can you imagine that? When I get to Washington, my promise to you is that I will be humiliated. I will be shamed by other leaders. I'll be beaten. I'll be spit upon. I'll be mocked. I'll be falsely accused. I'll be tried in a kangaroo court, and then I will be publicly executed. I'm Jesus, and I approve this message. (laughs) Who would vote for that? Like, how do you gain a following with promises like that? It's crazy talk. This is crazy talk, and Peter is having none of this. I think Peter's thinking, you know what? I am the newly appointed leader of this outfit. Right? Jesus just said I'm his rock, so I'm basically the senior pastor here. Right? And Jesus needs some pastoral counseling. Right? He's tired or something, loopy. He's been doing too much ministry. So I'm going to pull him aside. Not, I don't want to embarrass him. I'm going to get him in private and counsel Jesus a little bit. And he does so in verse 22. Look what it says. And Peter took Jesus aside, and he began to rebuke him. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? And he said, far be it from you, Lord. Literally, he says, God be merciful to you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. 
Like, Peter is, is confused by what Jesus is saying about suffering and, and death here. And so all he can say is, no way. No way, Lord. That is not going to happen. I just said you're the Christ. I know what that means. Everybody knows what the Christ is and who the Christ is and what he will do. The Christ comes to, to, to end suffering, right? Not to suffer himself. The Christ comes to drive out the oppressors, not to be oppressed. The Christ comes to win, not to lose. Peter's got his hat on that says, make Israel great again, right? He's the campaign manager of Jesus. He's already planning the victory parade because he knows who the Christ is. The phrase crucified Christ, that's an oxymoron to them, to Peter, and to all of Israel, really. It it doesn't make any sense at all. It it makes sense to us. We say it all the time. We've said it today several times. Crucified Christ. We're Christians. That's what we talk about all the time. Crucified Christ. But to them, it was nonsense, right? It was like saying losing champion, defeated victor. It's like, what? What What are you talking about, crucified Christ? So, here's Peter's confusion. He understands who Jesus is, right? He's the Christ, but he doesn't really understand how Jesus is going to be the Christ, right? It's like he's forgotten the part in Isaiah where it says that Christ would be pierced for our transgressions, right? That he would be crushed for our iniquities. That we could only have peace, it says in Isaiah, through his punishment, That we could only have healing through his wounds. That God would lay on him the iniquities and sins of us all. See, the most distinguishing mark of the Christ is not his powerful ministry and successful ministry. It's his suffering. But Peter doesn't get that. Peter's totally confused about that. Peter's thinking, you know what? I did not sign up for this. I I did not sign up to be on a losing team. If if our leader gets killed, what's going to happen to me? See, Peter's in it for power, for victory, for success, for respect, not for suffering, not for shame, not for, not for death. It's interesting in verse 22 that he uses that phrase. Look at it. In the ESV, it says, far be it from you, Lord. But, but what he's really saying is, God, be merciful to you, Lord. So the belief was that if God is with you, you won't get hurt. Like, if God is with you, you won't suffer. If God is with you, you will be successful. If God is with you, you will win. You know what we call that kind of teaching today? We call it the prosperity gospel. And it is a false gospel. Because it is a crossless gospel. Peter is confused about the cross. And so he tries to reroute Jesus, right? But Jesus is not easily rerouted. Look at verse 23, our last verse. But Jesus turned to him. It, it, it's the idea that he, he turned, he, like he turned on him. He, he, he turned to confront him. He is so offended by what Peter is saying. But Jesus turned to him and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Listen, when Jesus calls you Satan, you are not having a good day, right? (laughs) This is not your best day. 
Because Satan means literally adversary or enemy. He's like, Peter, you're being like my enemy here. And what's interesting is Peter is not in some obvious grievous sin. He's not murdering somebody. He's not lying. He's not stealing. He's not committing adultery, breaking one of the Ten Commandments. He's actually trying to love Jesus, trying to protect Jesus. And Peter's like, no, what? you know what? You're like Satan to me right now. Now, Jesus, if you, if you think about it, Jesus is very familiar with the temptations of Satan, isn't he? In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is in the wilderness, uh, Satan comes to Jesus and tempts him three times. Uh, he, he barrages Jesus with temptation. Number one, he says, hey, you're hungry. I know you're hungry, Jesus. You've been fasting for like 40 days. Just turn this stone into some bread, and there you go. You got a meal. And then he says, Jesus, I'm going to take you to the highest point up on the temple, and I want you to throw yourself down just to show off, just to prove that you're God's son. And then, he, and then Satan says, I'm going to show you all the kingdoms of the earth. You can rule all of those, Jesus. You have the glory to be the ruler of all of those if you'll just bow down and worship me, Satan. And so I'll give you glory without the cross. Never mind that cross thing. Don't even worry about that. I'll let you rule the world anyway. And so what Satan tempts Jesus with, with is, Jesus, be extraordinary. Right? Jesus, avoid suffering. Jesus, be the winner. That's exactly what Peter's saying to him. Jesus, you're extraordinary. There's nobody like you. You should avoid suffering at all costs. And you're going to win. We're going to win this thing. And I think we ought to know that when, we're, when, we're, when we feel the temptation to be extraordinary and to set ourselves above other people or to avoid suffering at all costs or to win at all costs, we need to ask ourselves, is that from God? Or is that from Satan? See, Jesus knew satanic wisdom when he heard it. It was coming straight out of Peter's mouth. Peter, he says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Listen to this. Frederick Dale Bruner says this. This is great. He says, Satan inspires the human obsession with greatness and success. But God inspires the divine concern for lowliness and service. Satan leads up, God leads down. Human thoughts soar upward, divine ones move down below. The devil loves human greatness, but God is suspect of it. Are you suspect of a pursuit for greatness? Peter wants Jesus to be great and get all the glory without the cross, but that is not the way of God. It's not the way of God. So Peter, the rock, has become Satan to Jesus, like an adversary. Peter, the rock, has now become a stumbling block to him. Jesus is like, you're like a hindrance to me. You're like a a block in the road. I'm tripping over you, man. Get out of my way. I think when I read that, I'm encouraged because I, I don't know how you feel, but I'm a mixed bag when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus. Sometimes I totally get Jesus, and sometimes I totally get in his way. You ever feel that? Like Peter here totally gets it right in the confession, Jesus, you're the Christ. He totally gets it wrong in his confusion. You're never going to die. You're never going to suffer. You're going to win. And Jesus says, no, you're right. I am the Christ, but precisely because I am the Christ, I am going to suffer 
and I am going to die. I am the crucified Christ because the way of the cross is the way to life, right? Cross before glory, suffering before victory, death before life. That's the way of Jesus. To follow Christ means that we die. We, we, we give our lives up. We deny ourselves. Here's the good news, though. It's not a death that's final. It's not a death that's ultimate. It's not a death that gets the last word. I want to end by reading verse 24 and 25. Look at them. They weren't in our reading today. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Isn't that great? Like whoever will lose his life for Jesus' sake will find true life. And here's why. Because the cross is not the final word. Death is not the final word. Resurrection is. Peter actually, I think, didn't even hear Jesus mention that in verse, uh, I think it was verse 22, 21. Verse 21, Jesus says he's going to be raised on the third day. I think Peter was so appalled about all the suffering and death talk, he totally missed the resurrection talk. But Jesus already said it. Death doesn't win. Christ wins. But he wins how? By overcoming suffering and death, not by avoiding it. He's the Christ, but he's the crucified Christ. That's what we believe as Christians. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.